2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 10, So David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him into the city of David. David has tried to move the ark, but he hasn't done it the way God said. He used an ox cart to do it, which is how the Philistines moved it. Did you know there's some things that work real well for the Philistines that don't work well for the people of God? And about the time you start trying to bring Philistine methods into God's work, you're going to make a mess. So he's carrying the ark in the ox cart, and it started to bend, come over a little bit. And Uzzah reached out to steady it, and God killed him. Because he wasn't supposed to touch the ark. The ark was something really special. I'll go into that in a little bit. So David went out and removed the ark. He carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The fact that he's a Gittite means that he's from Gath, which is a Philistine city. He didn't get it back to Jerusalem. He leaves it in Gath. And the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told to King David, saying, The Lord hath blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. This time we read in a parallel passage that he had only the Levites carry it, for thus God hath commanded. And they put the staff or the staves into the rings around the side so they did not touch it. But I want you to look at that interesting statement, the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. Because of the ark's sake. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you guide me by your spirit as best I know. I'm preaching the message you've laid on my heart. I ask that you would empower me and direct me that I would say what will be the most help to the most people. Lord, I pray that you would bind the devil and his demons and keep them from removing this good seed of your word from the soil of our hearts. Lord, open our minds, our hearts, our spirits to that which you have for us. And we'll sure thank you. Bless the preaching, bless the invitation. In Jesus' name, amen. Obed-Edom was a Philistine and he dwelt in the city of Gath. But he made a discovery. He found out that when he was near the ark, God blessed him and all that pertained to him for the ark's sake. Now, the ark in the Old Testament was not just a piece of furniture. Oh, it was a fancy piece of furniture. It was overlaid with gold. It had some fine carving on it, a couple of angels on the top, and a mercy seat. But the ark was much more than that. Inside the ark was the tables of the law that God had written with his own finger and given to Moses. Inside the ark was some manna with which God had fed the children of Israel in the wilderness. And inside the ark was Aaron's rod that had budded. But the ark was much more than that. In the Old Testament, the ark was the literal and actual dwelling place of God. When the temple was built, the ark was placed not in the holy place, but in the holy of holies. And there was a great veil that was placed between it and the rest of the tabernacle or the temple. And the fact is that only the high priest could go there only one time a year to make offering for the sins of the people and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And they were so afraid that he might do something that would offend the most high and most holy God that he had a rope around his ankle so that in case he was struck dead, they could drag him out without going in there himself. It was really a big deal. You see, the ark 
was the dwelling place of God. God does not dwell now in buildings made with hands. And even then he was omnipresent. But the Bible says today, ye are the temple of the living God. And your body is sacred and to be sanctified and set apart because God lives in you. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which you have of God, and ye are not your own. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. But Obed-Edom found out something that God's blessing came with God's presence. The Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all that he had because of the ark's sake. You see, the Christian life is not a program. It's not a procedure. It's a person. The Christian life is Jesus Christ. The Bible says that in all things he should have the preeminence. and That means he should be first in order and foremost in importance. But it also says when Christ, who is our life, shall appear. The Bible says in him we live and move and have our being. The Bible says in him we have all things that pertain to life and godliness. And when I read the Bible, I'm learning to walk with God. When I pray, I'm communicating with God. And when I yield to the Spirit, I am being indwelt and empowered and directed by him. And you see, the Christian life, I'm all for having standards. I got some things in the books about back there about that. I believe in that. I believe in leadership requirements. I believe in living a separated life. I believe in right doctrine, but you can have all that stuff and not be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, the Christian life is not about a particular group. Well, our fellowship is right doctrinally, and so God's going to bless it. It's not a particular man or an organization or a method. Blessing comes because you're close to God. See, no, oh, I can use men and he uses movements and he uses organizations, but it's not the organization that has the blessing. It is their reliance on God. There were a lot of bushes in the wilderness, but Moses is only attracted to one bush, the burning bush, because God was there. There are a lot of weddings in Cain of Galilee, but we only celebrate one because the Lord Jesus honored it and sanctified it by his presence and the performance there of his first miracle. There are a lot of places Jacob slept. But we only remember one because he said the presence of the Lord is in this place. There are a lot of graves outside Bethany's cemetery, uh, but we only go to visit one when we go to the Holy Land because that's the one outside which the Lord Jesus stood and said, Lazarus, come forth, and he that was dead. I love that, he that was dead. We never talk about death in the past tense. Say, brother, well, that's your mother alive? No, well, I don't know, she was dead. I haven't checked recently, let me run down to the... Graveside, see if the tomb is, no. She, but when Jesus comes into your life, death goes in the past tense. Amen. 
And those of you who were dead in your trespasses and sins have been quickened and made alive. There were a lot of handicapped people around the pool of Bethesda, but only one of them got our attention because Jesus came and said to him, rise and take up thy bed and walk. There were a lot of funerals held in name, but we remember one of them because of the funeral of the son of a widow in name. Jesus came and brought him back to life. And there were a lot of tombs outside the city of Jerusalem, but we sanctify the memory of one because in it for three days, Days was housed the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you only had a borrowed tomb. You only needed it for a few days. It's all right. <laughs> Nobody even found out, man. If you get where God is, God blesses you. That's not the end of the story. Turn over to First Chronicles chapter thirteen, if you would please. I was reading this again a little, a day or two ago in my devotions, reminded of this story. The Bible says in 1 Chronicles 13, 13, so David brought not the ark home to himself, to the city of David, but carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and the ark remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months, and the Lord blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that he had. Parallel passage to what we just read. But then go to chapter 15 and verse 24. The Bible's listing those who served around the, the tabernacle and around the ark as it was carried back to Jerusalem. And it says in verse 24, and Shebaniah and Jehoshaphat and Nathaniel and Amasai and Zechariah and Benaiah and Eleazar the priest did blow with the trumpets before the ark of God and Obed-Edom. And Jehiah were doorkeepers for the ark. That's interesting. Go to chapter 16. So they brought the ark of God, verse 1, and said in the midst of the tent that David had pitched for it, and they offered burnt sacrifices and offerings before God, verse 4, and he appointed certain of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord and to record and to thank and to praise the God of Israel, Asaph the chief, and next to him Zechariah and Jael and Shemiramoth, I'm sorry, Shemiramoth, there you go, and Jehiel and Mattathiah and Eliab and Benaiah and Obed-Edom. I thought Obed-Edom was a Gittite. I thought on the way home from bringing the ark from the Philistines back to the city of David, they paused and left it in the house of Obed-Edom. And now the Bible says Obed-Edom. Now, that's not an Israeli name. The Edomites are not Israelites. You understand? They were adversaries. They were pagan people. They were not godly people. Obed-Edom, the son of Edom. And now he's a doorkeeper of the ark, and he's serving along with the Levites. Obed-Edom not only made a discovery, he made a decision. He don't have been around the ark for three months. He was not from Jerusalem. His home was not there. His family was not in Jerusalem. His job was not in Jerusalem. But when they said, we're taking the ark back to Jerusalem, he said, take me with it. He said, after three months in the presence of God, I just don't want to be any place else. And even though this is not where my inheritance would normally be, and this is not where my future would be, and this is not where my financial base is, and this is not where my family is, and this is not where my friends are. He, I don't really care anything about that near as much as I care about being where God is. He said, I, I want to be where the ark is. I want to be in the presence of God. You know, I'm not against television. We have televisions in our house. I don't watch it much anymore. 
I won't tell you the story about that. I'm not against it. But, but I want to tell you something. People who spend four hours a day watching the TV and five minutes reading their Bible should not wonder why they don't have the blessing of God on their life. People who have all kind of time for night line and no time for prayer time. People who have all kind of time for reading outdoor life and field and stream or good housekeeping and no time for reading the Bible. People who have memorized the statistics of their favorite ball team and have not memorized a Bible verse in five years, they, they don't need to wonder why they don't have the blessing of God. Now, listen, God's been mighty good to me, but I want to tell you what motivates me and what encourages me and, and what keeps me going is not the fact that sometimes people give me a necktie and not the fact that sometimes people have nice things in my room and not the fact that sometimes... People say nice things about me. I'll tell you what, I get to serve God. I get to be around God. I get to see God change people's lives. And people have all their little political games that they play and all the things that they do. And you have all that you want, but I'm going to stay with the ark. Everybody's trying to figure out today how to do church. And somebody, a guy named George Barna, took a survey a while ago. By the way, watch out for George Barna. The Wall Street Journal and a professor of the University of Connecticut have both said that his studies are flawed and his conclusions are wrong. And he overstates the failures of the church because George Barnard was the one who founded the idea, the concept, or at least one of the early movers of the contemporary church. And he said, you ought to figure out what people don't like about church and then don't give it to them. So they don't like Amazing Grace, give them do I do I do I did he? They don't like preaching, give them a little chat. They don't like invitations, tell them to go to the back room somewhere. They don't like the, you being confrontational, they just be real nice and tell them how wonderful they are. And George Barna got so disgusted with the results of his methodology that he's written two books called Pagan Christianity and Revolution, in which he's not against just the methods he proposed, he's against church. He wants to have 30 people in a house, no more than 30, sitting in a circle where they can all talk. They all have equal opportunity to say what they want to say. Now, now, let me tell you what's wrong with that whole deal. They just tried to figure out how to get people to come. Well, I got an idea. Serve booze. <laughs> people love booze. Just put a big sign up there. Free beer. I'd get them to come. That'd be all right. Willow Creek Baptist Church for a minute. Not Willow Creek, but Willow Creek. Uh, Bill Havels, Willow Creek, not a Baptist church at all. But one of the early contemporary churches that took off and got really big. They did a study a while ago. They spent $80,000. They had a man that used to work for Procter & Gamble doing research for them. And in the study, he discovered that their people weren't really much better than the people in the world. The divorce rate was a little bit higher, and most of their people didn't have a personal relationship with God. Most of them didn't have Christian values and a Christian worldview. And here's what Bill Heibel said. He said, we found out that when people crossed the line of faith, that's his term. I think he's trying to say what we'd say by getting saved, although I'm not sure uh, if any of all his people understand that. When they crossed the line of faith, we should have told them, are you ready for this? To read the Bible on their own. Imagine what you could learn if you had $80,000 to do a study. <laughs> you see the whole deal out there. And by the way, I'm not worried about it. I promise you. 
I've been winning people to Christ for years out of mainline denominations, Methodist church, Lutheran churches, Catholic churches, Presbyterian churches, because they didn't preach the gospel. We're starting to win people to Christ now out of contemporary churches because they're not preaching the gospel either. Just go home and Google Rick Warren's standard salvation prayer. And it says something like this. It says, uh, God, thank you for loving me. I thank you have a purpose for my life. Thank you for Jesus. As much as I understand it, I accept him. Help you understand it more. No, I'm a sinner. I'm under the wrath of God. I needed a Savior to deliver me, to redeem me from my sin. None of that in there. And I am convinced. Frank Bumpus, Brother Benny would know Brother Bumpus. He pastored in Schaumburg, Illinois for many years at a great church. And he three times sent staff members over to Willow Creek. And every time they asked the person giving them the tour how to get to heaven, and none of them gave him a gospel answer. I preach every year on the island of Kauai. My brother Nathan Gross said, would you preach for me in Kauai? I said, let me pray about it, yes. <laughs> His wife is a native of the island. She never left there until she went to college except to go shopping in Oahu a couple times. One day they came by from the Aloha Church and she was living in a little apartment then and they hadn't built a house or anything yet. They were early in their ministry. And, and uh, they talked to her and she didn't tell them she was saved. She didn't tell them she was a preacher's wife. And they said, can we pray with you? And she said, sure. And they prayed, Lord, thank you for how to copy I and please come into her life and help her. And they got done. They said, congratulations, you're the 10,000 something person to receive Christ. She said, wait a minute, you think I'm saved now? They said, yes. She said, you didn't talk to me about sin. You didn't talk to me about hell. Oh, they said, we don't mention those things. Those are too negative. Now, I'm not, I'm not worried about it because people are going to discover there's so little there. And it's so far removed from the word of God. And there is so little, if any, of the presence of God in many of those churches that all we got to do is have the real deal. And, and Obed-Edom said, you know what? I don't care where I have to go. I don't care who I have to leave. I don't care who's upset with me. I don't care who I disappoint. I want to be where the blessing of God is. I want to have what God has done in my life in these days. You know, I've been a long time in this, this, this preaching deal. I've been saved since I was four. That's 56 years. I've I been licensed to preach since just before my 17th birthday. I've been in full-time ministry just a few weeks short of 40 years and at our church almost 38 years. And it's interesting, Brother Thompson, there have been times everybody wanted to claim me. And there have been times nobody wanted a thing to do with me. <laughs> As far as I can tell, I was the same guy both times. A, a man came to me one time and he said, now, brother, well, that, you need to get affiliated with our organization over here. He said, you need a home. He said, everybody has cut you off. I said, brother Reynolds, I just checked and Jesus still has me on his list. <laughs> And it's all right. I mean, you can have me come or not have me come. You can love me or hate me. You can be happy about what I do or what I don't do. But the very best, by the grace of God, that I'm able, I want to just love this book and love the God of this book and have the book in my heart and live by the book and have the blessing of God on my life. Do whatever you want to do. I'll stay with the ark. Obed-Edom said, wherever the ark goes, that's where I'm going to go. But there's one more thing I want you to see in our little study. Turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 26. We've seen how the ark was at Obed-Edom's house, and Obed-Edom became a doorkeeper of the ark. And look at verse 4. 
Moreover, the sons of Obed-Edom were Shemaiah, the firstborn, Jehazabad, the second, Joah, the third, Shekhar, the fourth, Nethaniel, the fifth, Amiel, the sixth, Issachar, the seventh, Peluthi, the eighth, for God blessed him. So this is exciting, isn't it? Also unto Shemaiah and his sons were sons born that ruled throughout the house of their father. For they were mighty men of valor, the sons of Shemaiah, Athne, and Raphael, and Obed, and Elzabad, whose brethren were strong men, Elihu, Shemekiah. say, how do you get those names all right? I don't. I just say them however I want to because you don't know how to pronounce them either. <laughs> all these of the sons of Obed-Edom, they and their sons and their brethren, able men for strength for the service were three score and two of Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom made a discovery. He found out that the blessing of God came from the presence of God. He made a decision. He said, I'm going to stay with the ark. And he reaped a dividend and that was this. He loved God and he followed God and he left those that weren't following God. And when he did that, 62 of his descendants also followed God. This church has high standards of Christian living and I commend you for that. It's marvelous. And you're careful about worldly activities and worldly dress and worldly behavior and that is absolutely wonderful. But I want to caution you about something. If you think doing those things Gives you a good relationship with God. If you think doing those things guarantees that your children will therefore turn out right, you missed the point. Godly people have standards, but having standards does not make you godly. The Mormons have standards. They won't even drink tea, coffee, or Coca-Cola. But unless they turn to the Lord Jesus and quit believing that Jesus and the devil are brothers and that God's a man who made good and if they do real good, they can become God too. They're not going to heaven no matter how many standards they have. You know what your kids need more than anything else? They need to know you love God. They need to know that God matters in your life. They need to know that you're willing to sacrifice for God and his work. They need to know it's real with you. I don't know if I should say his name or not, so I won't, but there's a well-known man and his son got messed up, was stealing, got in trouble with the police. And uh, later on, he turned around and got right with God and he was in our church with his mother and father and helping in their ministry. And I said to him, I said, what, what brought you back? He said, I'll tell you what it was. He said, I knew my parents were happy people. I knew they loved God and they enjoyed his work. And he said, when I was away, I was miserable. So you can, you can be a church member. Your kids not want to stay with the ark. You can be a Baptist and your kids not want to stay with the ark. You can be an independent, fundamental, separated, soul-winning Baptist and your kids not want to stay with the ark. But if your kids really see that you love God and it's a real deal for you. It was probably about 1970, maybe 71. 
My dad was in evangelism then, and he preached at the Gratiot Avenue Baptist Church in Detroit, and they gave him for a five-night meeting or six-night meeting, Sunday through Friday, something like that, they gave him $1,000. That's when the minimum wage was about a buck sixty an hour. That's when you could buy a pretty decent car for about $5,000. They gave him $1,000. And he was happy. <laughs> and I was impressed. And in my young college, not very spiritual state, I said, wow, Dad, you keep that up and pretty soon you'll be in the big time. <laughs> my dad smiled and he said, son, I've been in the big time for 20 years. <laughs> See, my dad, big time wasn't a big offering. Big time was serving a big God. I had a friend, a mentor to me when I was earlier in the ministry. He was about 45 minutes, an hour down the road from me. His name was Paul Vanneman. Paul Vanneman was an unusual man. He was one of the most, he was unique. He was as unusual as anybody I knew. He, he was just a different kind of guy. He ran his church different. He, uh, one time I was down there and he showed me the property and they had the practice soccer field set up and had the goals up and the lines on the field. I said, oh, that's a nice piece of property. He said, well, we don't own that. Some woman owns that. I said, it's nice she let you use it. He said, well, we never asked her. <laughs> it's just how he did it. He, uh, one time he had a little piece of property when the expressway came through, it cut off this guy's property pretty much and I've been trying to sell it to him and Dr. Vanderman called him up. He said, well, I want to buy that property you got but I don't want to pay what you're asking. The man said, yeah, you probably want me to give it to you. He said, yes. And when you hear what I've done, I think you will. He said, what'd you do? He said, I just poured the footings for my new educational building to extend 40 feet over your property line. <laughs> if I did that, I'd get sued or go to jail. The man called him back and said, well, my accountant says I can't sell to anybody else and they need the tax break so I'll give it to you unusual kind of guy. He went to the deacons one time and he said, fellas, I need some more money, $30 a week. A couple weeks later, the treasurer came back and said, pastor, we met and we decided we're going to give you a raise. It'll be $15 a week. And Dr. Vanneman said, I said 30 bucks. And he told me, he said, I said, well, that's the way you're going to be. That's it. Never had another deacons meeting. 20 years went by. <laughs> Never did it. But there's something else about that man. He gets so excited about a portion of scripture that he preached on Sunday. He'd call me on Monday and he'd preach me the sermon over the phone. It'd be an hour, hour and a half. I wrote it down. If I liked it, I was done studying for the week. <laughs> and he'd say things to me like this. He'd talk about Jesus. He'd say, I love him, boy. I told him this morning that I love him, and I really do. He paid himself $300 a week. And he put $150 Toward household expenses, gave that to his wife, put $100 in the offering, kept 50 bucks to live on. One time we had him at our church, Lee Robertson was going to come and couldn't get in. It was the only meeting Lee Robertson had ever missed. Weather kept him from coming. Dr. Vanderman came up and he just knocked it out of the park. And, and this was probably about 19, 
89, 90, somewhere in there. And we gave him a $1,000 offering for that one night. And, uh, and he said, isn't that fun giving money away like that? He said, of course, you know what I'll do with that. I said, no, sir. He said, I'm putting that in the missions fund of the Dixie Baptist Church. One night we went to, we'd gone to Washington, D.C. and we're doing some work because of our Christian school situation. And he and I and another man were in a motel room. And we sat there. The other man was named Bob Baldwin. I was reading my Bible. Bob Baldwin was reading his Bible. And Paul Vanneman sat there with his Bible closed on his lap. And it was as if he was the only person in the room. And I watched his eyes well up with tears. And he looked at the Bible and he said, Blessed old book. Precious old book. At his funeral... A friend of his told how Dr. Vanman got all excited about a particular verse of Scripture. And he called up and told him about that verse, and he said, you know what I did, Herb? He said, I reached down to my Bible, and I kissed that verse. And he said, when I did, I felt like I kissed Jesus. Didn't surprise me. His kids wanted to go into ministry. Different, rough sometimes. Absolutely loved and had a personal relationship with God. I was in a motel room years ago. Our daughter, Carissa, who's almost 30 now. She'll be 30 the end of June, Lord willing. And she's maybe four or five years old. And the maid came in, and I gave her a tract. And I said, I can tell you what's in that tract in a few minutes if you'll let me. And she said, okay, i got a break coming. And I grabbed my Bible, and Carissa said, yes, I know what you're going to do. Katie got to be about three years old. And we, we always took our children soul winning with us. We'd just carry them around in a little carrier and uh, go. We, didn't, we went soul winning when we normally didn't, just carried them with us when they were little. It's pr- pretty good thing to do. You look pretty harmless when you knock in the door and you've got a baby in your arms. You know They don't figure much up to no good, and they'll talk about the baby. And right after one time, and Katie said, we're going to go out, and she said, Dad, can I give him the good news? She meant by that, can I hand him the track? Because she'd see me many times and say, can I give you some good news? Give you some good news. I said, sure. And we went to this house. It was a duplex. And I was going to go to this side, and I'm getting ready to go there. But there were cats on the other side. And there's a little gate keeping them in the porch. Katie loved cats. She just loved cats. Now, my wife's allergic to cats, and so we told her we couldn't have a cat because my wife was allergic to them. One day we had a dog that was at the end of its life, and we were getting ready. We actually already got another dog, and we said, now, Kate, I'm trying to prepare. You know, we've had Kelly for a long time, and if anything happened to her, we'd still have Button. And she said, and when Button dies, we can get another dog. <laughs> and then she said, and when Mom dies, we can get a cat. <laughs> <laughs> so she loved cats. And before I know it, she's got the tracks in her hands. She climbed over that gate. She got in there. She played with the cats. And people come to the door. And I said, hi. <laughs> Mrs. Hilton. I got to lead her to Christ. See, she and her husband come to church and get baptized. See, my kids found out God likes to do things in your life. I was out jogging one night. I don't do that anymore. I, I caused that last earthquake in California. So... <laughs> I go on the elliptical machine or treadmill now, but and I, it's about it's about twelve forty-five, and I was praying after I'd been running, and I, I I felt like I should 
asked the Lord to do something special in my life, just some demonstration of his work. And I said, Lord, what do you want me to pray for? And the next thought popped in my mind was to pray for a swimming pool. Now, we'd had a, an in-ground pool at our previous house, but the house right now, we didn't have one. And I said, well, Lord, that seems kind of strange, but would you give us a swimming pool? I didn't tell anybody. I didn't say anything about it. It wasn't two, three days later. Krista said, Dad, could we get a swimming pool in the ground? I'd put up a little three-foot one where we lived out there in the country for her to play in. I said, well, let's pray about it. We prayed every night for a long time. I was preaching in Atlanta. There's a man there that owned a pool company, and he was going to get me a good deal on a little bigger above-ground one, and we talked about that. He took a few steps when he stopped, and he came back and said, did you ever think about putting the pool in the ground, an in-ground pool in? I said, well, I thought about it. He said, well, if you'll just pay for the materials, which is about a third of the cost, I'll come up from a Georgia to your house in Michigan and put it in for you for free. And God gave us the money for the materials. And every time we go in the pool, I'd say, Krista, why do we have this pool? She said, God gave it to us. Yeah. Then we had a little rabbit for a while, and the rabbit got lost. So my wife said, well, let's pray. And they're praying. And while my wife's praying, Krista goes, oh, she was peeking. <laughs> the rabbit hid behind the stove, and it came out, and they got it. And she said, you know what I learned, Dad? I said, what'd you learn? She said, God can answer your prayer in a long time or in three seconds. Yeah. Yeah. Curtis Hudson followed Dr. John Rice at the sword of the Lord. He got prostate cancer. He died when he was just about my age. I never saw anybody die as well as Curtis Hudson. Last big meeting he preached was the Southwide Baptist Fellowship. He preached some after that. It was the last big one he's at. They asked me if I'd help provide a nice bus to take him from his home in Murfreesboro to the meeting in Charlotte. And I gave some money and some other people gave some money. And they said, would you like to come down and ride on the bus? I said, I'd like that. So I flew to Nashville and they picked me up and went to his house and got on the bus. His daughters, his, I think two of his three daughters are there and his wife and a couple other preachers and me. And Dr. Hudson was, uh, he'd say, he said, I, I'm not, I, don't, I don't have any pain, I'm just a little sore. But when we went to eat, he didn't get off the bus. And I watched him when he thought everybody else was asleep and everybody was asleep except me and him. And he'd just cross and uncross his legs and he'd pull his lips back across his teeth and grimace just to move his leg a little bit. He knew he was not going to live long. He called all his children in, three daughters, one boy, and had them all promise that they'd stay married to each other and they'd stay faithful and serve God. All of them in the Lord's work today. He went to that meeting and he got up and he said, before I preach, I want to sing. His daughter Donna went to the piano and he sang, Well, I'm on the winning side. That's how he sang it. Yes, I'm on the winning side. And he preached, preached a great message. Things that are different are not the same. Other versions are not the same as the King James. Southern Baptist is not the same as Independent Baptist. Lifestyle Vance is not the same as soul winning. And he was sharp. He was on. He's preaching along and he said, Bob Jones seems the first person to join the National Association of Evangelicals. And somebody who wasn't really on his side said, Amen. And he said, And when they got bad, he's the first one to leave. Say Amen again. 
then he got all done. He didn't really give an invitation. He said, my precious children have been so sweet. My oldest daughter, Sherry, said, Daddy, I hate to talk about these things. We have to talk. She said, if you die, if the Lord takes you to heaven, what do you want on your grave marker? He said, on one side, put the plan of salvation. I'll write it for you. The grave marker's about that high. I've been to see it. And the gospel's clearly on it and an invitation to the person reading to pray and trust Christ as their Savior. He said, on the other side, put the last two stanzas of there is a fountain filled with blood. He said, I'm going to sing them for you if I can. Ever since by faith I saw the flood, thy healing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. He choked up a little bit and said, and shall be till I die. And then he sang, when this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. They'd saved me a seat with the family, and we stood there weeping. You know, his big deal at the end of his life was not that he printed so many books or published so many tracts. But he wanted to be sure people still loved and lived for the Lord Jesus Christ. Obed-Edom made a discovery. Power of God was because of the presence of God. Blessing of God was because he was in the presence of God. He made a decision. You move the ark, I'm going with it. He reaped a dividend. His children went on to serve God. We support a missionary named Daryl Champlin. He's in Suriname. He will probably never come home from the field. He's old and he's not well and he does not want to come home. He told me one time that a sister-in-law of his who was a missionary had had cancer. He said, I'm really worried about her going to the doctor. I thought he was concerned about her health. He said, I'm afraid that the doctor will tell her she can't go back on the field. He said, you see, in our family, the worst thing ever happened to us is dying in America. His mother, his wife's mother and father were missionaries to Africa, the Grings. The Grings came home from Africa for a little bit to help Bob Jones Sr. start Bob Jones College in 1927. And then they went back on an old wooden schooner, three-masted schooner, and on their way there it caught fire. All their possessions were burned up. A Dutch freighter came by, rescued them, but it was going the wrong direction. And Mrs. Grings said, Honey, maybe God doesn't want us in Africa you know, we're, we lost everything we have. We're going the wrong direction. And he said, no, sweetheart, God wants us in Africa. He just wants us to be able to travel light. <laughs> no man has ever been on vacation with a woman has not had that desire. <laughs> no man's ever been on vacation with a woman has had that desire fulfilled. <laughs> we went to Africa and they went into a village where no white man had ever been. And the natives were kind and hospitable, and Mrs. Grings was pretty well versed in childbirth and things like that. She was a midwife, and, and she would help the ladies in the area, and they were very gracious to them, but none of them would ever get saved. They listened, they paid attention, but nobody trusts Christ. Mrs. Grings had come down with fever, and she'd partially recovered, and then a call came in the middle of the night for her to help with the birth, and she went back and helped, and by the time she got back home, she was really weak and really sick, and they ministered to her the best they could, but by morning, she was dead. Had to bury her the same day in that hot, humid African climate. 
And the natives saw something they'd never seen before. For them, death was the biggest enemy. And they saw people that were sad, yes, but they sang happy songs. And they smiled through their tears and they talked of reunion and they behaved as if this parting was not permanent. And not long after that, one of them came to Mr. Grings and said, Missionary, would you tell me more about Jesus? And he did, and he got saved. And another missionary, I want to trust Jesus, and another, and another. And he gathered them around after a while. I said, wait a minute, we've been here for a long time, and none of you have gotten saved. Why now are you trusting Christ? And one of them said this, missionary, we knew your religion was good enough for living, but we didn't know if it was good enough for dying. Now we know it's good enough for dying. And the letters came from home, you've got to come back. You can't stay alone, no wife, out in the jungle, hours from any kind of civilization with your five children. It was 13 years before they ever went back. And it didn't surprise me that all of the children and most of the grandchildren and many of the great-grandchildren are missionaries today. They've found out what happens when you live in the presence of God. 